concluding a series of sermons essentially about marriage, and today our sermon uh, deals with divorce. Uh, In thinking about divorce, we'll also be thinking about remarriage, singleness, and adultery. Uh, Let's look closely at that Matthew reading. So perhaps if you've uh, still got your pew Bibles in your hand, you might like to flip back to page 800 and find the start of chapter 19. What happens at the start of chapter 19 is that Jesus walks into a trap. Some Pharisees came to Jesus, verse 3, in order to test him. In biblical thought, to test someone is not so much to examine them as it is rather to set them up for failure, to try to trap them. And you see, in Jesus' day, an argument raged between rival schools of rabbis over their exegetical interpretation of Deuteronomy 24.1. What does it mean for a man to find his wife displeasing and to divorce her for any matter of indecency? The Hillel school of rabbis interpreted Moses' words, something indecent, broadly. In other words, if a husband found anything in his wife that was unsatisfactory and caused him to dislike her, that was legitimate grounds for divorce. Even, most famously, burning the breakfast. This stand was, of course, highly controversial and caused a lot of fierce argument. The Pharisees were stricter, and the strictest of them limited grounds for divorce to adultery alone. In asking Jesus this question, then, the Pharisees are not only trying to get Jesus to take sides in a contemporary controversy about marriage, but also to trap him into contradicting the law of Moses, at which point Jesus of Nazareth would lose all credibility as a teacher. Now, I guess if, if I'd been there and they'd asked me their question, I think my, my knee-jerk answer would have been, no, that's outrageous. You can't divorce your wife for burning your toast. Absolutely not. However, The correct answer, technically speaking, is yes. Yes, it is lawful to divorce your wife for any and every reason. For Moses did indeed write, if a man marries a woman who becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her and he writes her a certificate of divorce, gives it to her and sends her from his house. And if after she leaves his house, she becomes the wife of another man, etc., etc. Moses did not define what constitutes legitimate grounds for a woman becoming displeasing to her husband, nor what might be considered something indecent. If then you consider burning the toast a matter of indecency and in that act your wife becomes displeasing to you, you are legally entitled to divorce your wife. Undoubtedly, you could have a lot of fun with this if you were a lawyer. It may come as something of a shock to hear, but actually divorce in the Old Testament is not a sin. Not sanctioned, 
but not prohibited either. In the Old Testament, there are things that God is not prepared to accept or tolerate among his people. And last week, we saw that that included sex before or outside of marriage. That's sin. And in the New Testament, that's sin as well. But, perhaps strangely, God was prepared to tolerate, under the terms of the Old Covenant, both divorce and polygamy. Now, both divorce and polygamy do violence to our go-to text, which, as we have seen in this series again and again and again, is Genesis 2.24. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Neither divorce nor polygamy can be reconciled in any way with the understanding of marriage that Genesis 2.24 defines. However, the fact that they are tolerated doesn't mean that they are celebrated. Polygamy, in particular, is almost always presented to us in an extremely unfavorable light. Readers of the Old Testament can be of no doubt that the Holy Spirit dislikes polygamy and sees in it a multitude of errors and problems. Polygamy, that is to say, when a man has more than one wife at the same time, polygamy always acts so as to disempower women, so as to allow patriarchy to flourish unchallenged, and so as to put the detriment of the welfare of uh, 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 put the, the, the welfare of both women and children at risk. This is said poetically, but explicitly when polygamy is introduced to the biblical story in Genesis chapter 4. But perhaps because of the acceptance of polygamy in the Old Testament, divorce is less common. However, of the practice, the prophet Malachi says this, paraphrasing the verse by way of Eugene Peterson's The Message Translation, God says, I hate divorce! says the God of Israel. God of the angel, uh, angel armies says, I hate the violent dismembering of the one flesh of marriage. So watch yourselves. Don't let your guard down. Don't cheat. Returning then to Moses in the book of Deuteronomy, it's not difficult to see what Moses is doing. Moses is assuming that divorce will happen, and putting boundaries around it, harm minimization. The husband must write his wife a certificate of divorce. That's for her protection in the community and also to vouchsafe her right to remarry. Also, this husband can never remarry her if she's married to somebody else in the meantime. Although God is tolerating divorce, he will not tolerate the remarriage of a couple separated by divorce if they've been married in between. Why not? Well, it's not explained. I don't know. But it does seem to be consistent with the widespread notion in Scripture that somehow, mysteriously, sexual intercourse is a spiritual union between people as well as a physical and legal union union. Well, let's get back to Jesus. 
Jesus could answer the Pharisees' question either by saying yes or by saying no. Either by affirming or negating the proposition that it is lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason. But in fact, he does not answer the question. He responds to the question, but he doesn't answer it. And that's because the question is inadequate. If your framework is what is lawful, some things will always be beyond your ability to understand. Jesus responds not by teaching them what is lawful, but rather by teaching them what is natural. Now, by natural, heaven forbid that you think that I'm referring to the observations of biological science. Biological science has its place, but it's not here. It's, no, it's irrelevant with respect to the question of what is natural. No, what is natural in biblical thought always refers to the question of God's revealed will for his creation, not as seen in nature, but rather as seen in Genesis chapters 1 and 2. Creation before the fall. So Jesus shows them what is natural. Verse 4, haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female and said, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore what God has joined together let no one separate. Um, once again, we see that Genesis 2.24 is the one-stop, go-to shop for answering questions about the nature of marriage, that which is natural. Jesus continues in verse 8, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard, but it was not this way from the beginning. I tell you, that anyone who divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another woman commits adultery. What Jesus has done here is to dismantle their legalism, which is an inadequate structure for the pastoral care of human beings. And he's done this by pointing to what is natural for human beings, the divine will for marriage. So then, the Pharisees who sought to trap Jesus are now trapped, trapped under the weight of the biblical truth about marriage. Now, this statement here in Matthew about divorce and remarriage is, is actually one of several in the New Testament. Let me show you something about them. Um, you see, in Mark's Gospel, Jesus' response to this same incident is recorded as, <clears throat> he answered, anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another man, she commits adultery. And in Luke's gospel, Jesus is recording as teaching the Pharisees that anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery. And the man who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. And Paul teaches, 
as we've also heard uh, this morning, that, to paraphrase him, anyone who divorces their spouse and marries another person commits adultery, except for when the divorce is the result of being abandoned by an unbelieving spouse. In this case, remarriage is possible without adultery because the divorced, abandoned person is not bound. It's important to see that these that these statements about divorce and remarriage, if they are taken as objective pronouncements as to what is acceptable and what isn't acceptable, if these statements are taken in that way, then we have a problem. Because these statements logically contradict each other. If what Jesus says in Matthew's Gospel is true, then what he says in Mark and Luke cannot be true, and vice versa. These statements cannot all be reconciled into one simple, clear, and coherent model of divorce and remarriage. It is essential that we both make that observation as well as come to the right conclusion regarding this observation. You see... When it comes to matters of divorce and remarriage, if we're asking ourselves what is lawful, we are asking inadequate questions. We are barking up the wrong tree. We are attempting to rebuild a new Christian legalism about divorce and remarriage, just as Jesus is showing us that legalism is an inadequate structure for the pastoral care of real human beings. We can't adhere to the content of these texts in such way as to do violence to the spirit of these texts. Now, heaven forbid that you hear me saying that these statements therefore are not true, that they're not useful, that they're not reliable, that they're not foundational. They are. But we need to understand them in context. Christ's comments were made in the light of his first century context, wherein divorce was usually a male prerogative, a male prerogative only. And men generally divorced their wives in order to marry someone else. Divorce, therefore, was a vehicle for baptizing adultery, for making unfaithfulness look like respectability, and for shifting the blame of a failed relationship onto the ex-wife. Paul's context in his Corinthian correspondence is different again. He is dealing with a community of newborn Christians, some of whom came from a Jewish background, some others came from a Gentile, that is, Greco-Roman background. In that context, there are new believers married to non-believers. Should they persist in such relationships? What if the other partner abandons them? What then? Well, that's their context. What we need to do is to distill their comments made in their context into guidelines for our context. And here is my best go. Firstly, when we think about marriage, we remember what's natural. We remember that marriage creates a new family, a legal entity, a lifelong, permanent union into which children may or may not be born raised, nurtured, and cared for. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. This is what's natural. 
This means that we enter into marriage, if at all, never unadvisedly, lightly or wantonly, like brute beasts that have no understanding, to quote the Book of Common Prayer, but rather reverently, discreetly, advisedly, soberly, and in the fear of God, duly considering the causes for which matrimony was ordained. Secondly, although God never sanctions divorce, nor is it prohibited, divorce is not a sin. It is not a sin in the Old Testament. It is not a sin in the New Testament. Divorce, although not a sin, is always, sadly, a manifestation of the fact that we are sinful. Divorce is always a contradiction of the divine design that marriage is permanent. It may not be a sin, but it's always a disaster. If divorce or separation therefore come to pass, two ideas should always hold the key to all future actions. Those two ideas are reconciliation and peace. Firstly, reconciliation. Through faith in Jesus Christ, we are forgiven by God in order that we might be reconciled to him, brought back into right relationship with him. Forgiveness and reconciliation are therefore always foundational. In the light of a divorce, the separated person will constantly ask, does this action increase or decrease the chance of reconciliation? Sometimes reconciliation becomes impossible. Such as, for example, when the former uh, spouse marries, remarries. Then, then we aim for peace. How can we live in peace? But because divorce is not a sin, we do not judge each other over this. This is very important. Sometimes a person is not free to share with others the reason why they may have had to have fled from their spouse. We support each other, we encourage each other, but we do not judge each other over this issue. If you have judged someone over this issue, you need to ask God for his forgiveness. Also, if we have constructed a new Christian legalism about divorce and remarriage based upon statements issued in the process of the destruction of the old Jewish legalism, we need to renounce that too. Thirdly, we take heed that to divorce one spouse in order to marry someone else, either real or imagined, is actually adultery. A very serious sin indeed. Unacceptable before the Lord. Now, it's actually not uncommon for married people to fall in love with someone other than their spouse. And I'll say more about that in a moment. But we need to do whatever it is that we have to do in order to avoid this. But the material point here is this. If we find ourselves contemplating divorce... It should be either with a view to being reconciled to our spouse in the future or with a view to living as a single person ever thereafter. But not so that we can marry someone else, either real or imagined. Fourth, it is clear in the Old Testament 
and clearly implied in the New Testament that at least in certain instances, people who find themselves divorced do indeed have the freedom to remarry. Many Protestant churches, including the Anglican Church, have long understood that, for example, a person who abuses their spouse, who displays, quote, excessive harshness of word and of deed, to use um, Archbishop Thomas Cranmer's words from the early 16th century, that person has already abandoned the covenant made before God and become their spouse's mortal enemy. They are to be considered a deserter, and the spouse deserted. It was Thomas Cranmer's view that the guilty party ought to be punished by law, and that the innocent party should have the right to remarry. It is certainly my own understanding that a person who finds themselves having to flee for their own safety or is abandoned and betrayed, that person has the responsibility to forgive, the option of being reconciled, and the freedom to remarry. That said, it's not usual that there's a clear-cut guilty party and a clear-cut innocent party. Life is exceedingly complex, and human beings rarely survive in the presence of absolutes, which leads us back to our text, Matthew chapter 19, wherein the disciples respond to Jesus' teaching by saying, if this is the situation between a husband and a wife, it is better not to marry. Uh, That is not a philosophical contribution to the discussion. It's a polite way of saying, you've got to be out of your mind. It's what preachers call pushback. Pushback is when your congregation doesn't accept your teaching because it can't accept your teaching. The disciples were Jewish men who had all been raised under the old covenant. That covenant assumed and demanded that all men and women married unless there was some compelling reason why they couldn't. For a first century Jew to say, if that's the case, it's better uh, not to marry, is like us saying, oh well, we may as well just forget about the whole thing then. In other words, that's completely unworkable. Jesus acknowledges the pushback. Yes, you're right. Not everyone can accept this teaching. But then he pushes back on their pushback. Yes, some never marry because of the way that they were born. For some, marriage is out as an accident of birth. Nature has damaged them. And some will not marry because of the way that they've been treated by others. The world has damaged them. It's too much baggage. But there are also those who decide never to to marry for the sake of the kingdom of God. Those who can cope with singleness for the sake of the kingdom should accept it as their call. Interestingly, conversations about divorce and remarriage also seem to include conversations about singleness. Paul, also in his conversation in 1 Corinthians 7, he actually says five times, actually, it's better to stay single. And he says to couples contemplating divorce, don't! But if you do, either remain single or else be reconciled to each other. Um, Having been single myself up until uh, age 45, 
I believe that we've made a world today that is actually very difficult to be in as a single person. There aren't monastic or, coven, or, or convent communities to be joined. There aren't big extended households to serve in. People are busy. Families live in nuclear rather than extended arrangements. And by and large, we undervalue friendships. Seeing even close friends is inconvenient, at least some of the time. And so single people today often battle with desperate loneliness and lack of community, I think, in a way that singles of long ago perhaps never experienced. Conversely, we make romantic love and marriage into an idol. Certainly, I've been guilty of that. And we think that it's going to solve all our problems. This is a hard time in history, and Perth is a difficult place in the world to be an adult single. That said, it is still true that marriage is not for everyone and that the call to singleness for the sake of the kingdom is a very high call indeed. Paul, a single man, wrote, I wish all of you were as I am, but each of you has your own gift from God. One has this gift, another has that. Verse 7. So then, Conversations about divorce and remarriage also include comment on singleness. And they also include comment on adultery. Because divorce and adultery are related, apart from anything else, they're both desperately painful and awfully damaging. Um, Interestingly, societies that are tolerant of one generally are intolerant of the other. You may know that in England and in Australia, at the beginning of the 20th century, divorce was extremely uncommon and terribly frowned upon. You might not know that at the same time, adulterous affairs were the norm, especially amongst the aristocracy. By the end of the 20th century, the situation had backflipped. Divorce was now extremely common, almost the norm, whereas adultery was almost uniformly considered to be grossly unacceptable, even by non-religious people. Interestingly, though, when God wants to picture for us the horror of idolatry, the horror of us trusting and worshipping something other than him, He always uses adultery as his metaphor. When we are idolatrous, we are adulterous, spiritually speaking. That's how vile and hurtful it is. That's how destructive and painful it is when we don't believe what he has to say. Now, with respect to divorce and adultery, no couple on their wedding day wants to consider that either is in their future. Hopefully, divorce and adultery, neither is on the radar. Hopefully, they're not even thinking about it. And yet, the sad fact of the matter is that it is in their future for a frighteningly big percentage of couples, whether they be Christian or not. To help prevent that from happening, there are plenty of books on how to affair-proof your marriage. A good guide is His Needs, Her Needs. Building an Affair-Proof Marriage by Willard F. Harley, Jr. It's available at Kurong Christian Bookshop and it's worth reading. I can simplify his message to this. If you give him enough sex and her enough attention, everything's going to be all right. (laughs) But if he doesn't get enough sex and she doesn't get enough love, then watch out. 
Now, I've simplified his message to the point of caricature, and that's unfair. His book is worth reading. But for a different kind of analysis of why adulterous affairs happen, I recommend anything by Esther Perel. Perel is a research uh, um, uh, psychotherapist who approaches this area from a secular uh, standpoint. You can search for her TED Talks on YouTube if you'd like an introduction to her thinking. She's opened my eyes to the reality that adulterous affairs are complex. Like looking at car accidents, you may come to recognize common contributing factors, but each adulterous affair is its own unique thing, just like each car accident is its own thing. Sometimes somebody walks out on a relationship not because they can't bear the other person anymore, but rather they can't bear who they are anymore in the context of that relationship. Sometimes a person commits adultery not because they want to betray their spouse, not because they're not getting enough sex, not because their emotional needs are not being met, but rather because they want to betray themselves. There is something in their lives, and it might even be something that they themselves are not mentally conscious of. There's something in their lives that has become unbearable. Now, this is not for a moment to try to excuse adultery or to lessen its culpability as a sinful act, but it is to try to understand the phenomenon so as to lessen the chance of falling into the trap. Um, What could I give you today, just quickly? uh, Maybe three things two of which I learnt at Bible college. Firstly, whether you're single or married, never say to yourself, an adulterous affair could never happen to me. Being in denial of this possibility, as a possibility, significantly increases the chance of it happening. Secondly, I was also taught at Bible college that if you ever start to feel attracted to someone um, where it is not right or appropriate for you to be attracted to them, tell someone. The experience of finding others attractive, sometimes powerfully attractive, doesn't simply go away on the day that we're married. So we need a strategy to deal with it. And here's the strategy. If you're married, tell your spouse. If you're single, tell an intimate friend whom you trust. This strategy works Because crushes have power when they are secret. But when we confess them, acknowledge them, we often experience a sudden and near total, if not complete, freedom from what previously felt like a powerful grip. It may be confronting to make that confession, and it may be confronting to hear that confession. But this strategy really works and is usually less painful than imagined. And that's because we strengthen the bond of love, whether it's between husband and wife or between friends. We strengthen the bond of love when we share with each other our intimacies and our burdens. And so to my third point, every relationship must be regularly renegotiated. It would seem that people are most vulnerable to the possibility of an adulterous affair when there is something in their life that they are tolerating, but actually, perhaps unbeknownst even to themselves, it becomes unbearable. You might be, right now, be putting up with something that you can put up with, yes, sure, for five years, or maybe for 10 years, or perhaps for 15 years or 20 years. But at 25 years, you're going to say, no, that's it, I can't go another day, I'm sorry, it's over. 
All of us who are involved in relationships, which is all of us, family, friendships, marriage, we all do work in maintaining those relationships. And so we must learn to be able to effectively, honestly, and constructively renegotiate relationships regularly so that those hard-to-bear things don't become unbearable things. As I was repeatedly told in the months leading up to my own wedding, a successful marriage is not about meeting the right one, it's about being the right one. I'm, I'm still working on that. But actually, it's not just true about marriage, it's true about all relationships. This now concludes the lesson. The Lord be with you.